Well, I hope you uh, picked up a, a copy of the uh, sermon uh, notes. Uh, our current sermon series is Excelling in Our Love for One Another. And in this series, we're basically just taking a walk uh, through the New Testament epistles uh, to discover all the one another passages uh, that teach us how to express love to one another in the family of God. And uh, today our study brings us to the book of Hebrews where we find two one another passages, both that deal with encouragement. Uh, the first is in Hebrews uh, chapter 3, uh, which we will examine this morning. And then the second is in Hebrews 10, uh, which we will take up next Sunday. The Hebrew Christians to whom the book of Hebrews was written were in desperate, desperate need for encouragement. And that very first statement in your sermon notes uh, tells us why. So uh, look at that with me. The book, the book of Hebrews, was written to encourage Hebrew Christians who started well in their Christian faith, but now were in danger of faltering in their faith due to persecution. They had grown weary and frightened living in a social climate where following Christ was synonymous with suffering and could lead to imprisonment and even martyrdom. Uh, the writer encourages the struggling Christians not to fall away from the living God, as we're going to see in uh, chapter 3, verse 12, but to press on to maturity, chapter 6, verse 1, by fixing your eyes on Jesus, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and not to refuse Him who is speaking, uh, verse 25 of chapter 12. Now look now at the second statement in your notes, that rather lengthy paragraph, which is an overview of our focal passage for today, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. This is the second of five warnings found in the book, and it addresses the danger of doubting and disbelieving God's Word. The warning focuses on the example of the Old Testament Hebrews who, after experiencing God's redemption and miraculous provision and power in the exodus from Egypt, refused to trust and obey God by going into the promised land. Though God forgave His people for their sin, He disciplined them by not permitting them to enter the promised land as they wandered aimlessly uh, for 40 years in the wilderness. The writer uses this warning to admonish the Hebrew Christians not to make the same mistake, but to remain faithful to Christ, confident He will remain faithful to them. And in the midst of this warning, the writer emphasizes in verses 12 through 15 the importance of the community of faith for believers to, in, to continually encourage one another to stay true to God in light of the deceitfulness of sin. So take your Bibles, open them to Hebrews chapter 3, and uh, let's read these verses together. And then we're going to look at a couple of Old Testament 
passages that are referred to in this passage. So Hebrews chapter 3, I'll begin reading at verse 7, which is a quote of Psalm 95 uh, from the Scriptures. It says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, and you might want to circle that word today. It's the key word in the passage. It's found three times here in chapter 3. It's found two more times in chapter 4. So therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, God's voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways, and I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. A reference to not being able to enter the promised land. Now, in that quote of Psalm 95, we'll just stop right there. We'll come back in a moment to look at the rest of the passage. But in that quote of Psalm 95, the writer alludes to two different occasions uh, in the children of Israel uh, shortly after the exodus uh, where they failed to trust God, and as a result of that failure to trust God, they fell into disobedience. And the first one is in Exodus. And if you take your Bibles there, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 17 very, very briefly. And then the second uh, example is Numbers 14. And that, of course, is when the children of Israel are at Kadesh Barnea, when they refuse to trust God and uh, to uh, possess the promised land which he had uh, offered them. But the first uh, historical occasion that he refers to is here in Exodus chapter 17. Uh, in Psalm 95, he refers to their failure uh, in a place that was named Massa and Meribah. And we'll look at the significance of that in a moment. But Exodus chapter 17, this is what we read. And this is after they've been delivered from slavery in Egypt, after their deliverance uh, of, uh, at the Red Sea. It says, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why not? Why now have you brought us from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they're going to stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff which you struck of the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa. Massa means to test God. And Meribah, Meribah means to quarrel or to grumble because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now think about that. 
They hit this time of trial and challenge, and they grumble, they complain, and they say, is God really with us? Well, if he's with us, prove it. And this is after all that he had done through their exodus from Egypt, providing them that supernatural leader, Moses, the ten plagues that they saw, the Passover lamb. They leave Exodus after being slaves for hundreds of years. They despoil Egypt, leaving with all of its wealth. He parts the sea, the Red Sea, as they go through on dry land. And then he closes the waters to engulf Pharaoh and his armies. He leads them by day by a, a cloud, at night by a pillar of fire. He supernaturally provides for them with manna. And then they come to this trial, and is God among us or not? And they provoke God. They provoke God uh, through their mistrust. And that just continued as they uh, journeyed toward the promised land. And then it all climaxed in Numbers 14. In Numbers 14, they come to Kadesh Barnea, which is right at the... uh, Edge of the promised land, they're, they're about to enter, and, you, and most of you know the story. As they arrive at Kadesh Barnea, uh, Moses takes 12, tri- uh, 12 spies, one from each tribe of the children of Israel, and they go out and they spy the land. They come back and they give a report. And you remember 10 of the men said, hey, the land is everything God had said it, it is, and, it's more, and more than that. You, it's, just, it's beyond belief, but there's a problem. There's great men, great soldiers in this land. There are giants, and we're like grasshoppers in their sight, and they're going to squash us. And, of course, there was Caleb and Joshua, the two spies, who said, Oh, yeah, that's true, but God is with us. And God has promised that if we go forward, he'll be with us, and he'll give us victory. So we must trust. We must obey. But notice the response of the people in Numbers 14. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder." Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation and of the sons of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent meeting to all the sons of Israel. In other words, if God hadn't appeared, 
They would have literally stoned Moses and Aaron, Joshua and Caleb, appointed a new leader and would have gone back to Egypt. Verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs which I performed in their midst, I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. Hear what God's saying. He said, they've spurned me. They've provoked me. Moses, I'm going to destroy them, and I'm going to raise up another nation that I'll take into the land. And then, you know, we, 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 we're limited by time. Moses then intercedes for the people. And, and Moses pleads that he shows mercy, that he will pardon it, he will forgive the people, that he will not destroy them. And the Lord is touched by the intercession of Moses. Now look at verse 20. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them. I've forgiven them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. And then jump down to verse 26. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long? Shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? Notice, from the people's perspective, they were grumbling against Moses and Aaron, their leaders. But God said, they're not grumbling against you. They're grumbling against me because of their failure to trust me. He says, I've heard the complaints of the son of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in. And they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness. And they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land. 40 days for every day you shall bear your guilt a year. Even 40 years, and you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely I will do this, all this, uh, to this evil congregation who gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall be destroyed, and they will die. Now, that's the historical background. Now, go back to Hebrews chapter 3. So, he quotes Psalm 95 which refers back to these two historical occasions where Israel failed to trust God, rebelled against God, fell into disobedience, were chastened, disciplined by They remained God's people. He continued to care for them, 
But he severely disciplined them, chastened them. They never got to experience all the blessings God had intended for them because of their failure to trust. And so going back to Hebrews chapter 3, now verse 12. Now he uses this example to address these Hebrew Christians who are in danger of faltering and retreating because of persecution. He says, take care, brethren. There not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another. There's our one another passage. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, while it is said, today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Now what we want to do now in the minutes that we have left is to focus on verses 12 through 15 to learn three ways to encourage one another in the body of Christ as we battle with sin to live holy lives and to remain faithful to Jesus. And look at that very first point in your sermon notes. We are to encourage one another to protect our hearts against unbelief by focusing on spiritual growth. We are to encourage one another to protect our hearts against unbelief by focusing, maintaining the priority of spiritual growth. Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any uh, one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now, before we go any further, it is extremely important to emphasize why the language in this warning is so stern. And here it is. Trust is a choice you make. It's a choice that you make to place your confidence in someone you believe is reliable. Therefore, when you refuse to trust God, you are saying loud and clear to God, just as we saw with the children of Israel following the Exodus, I do not believe you are reliable, God. I do not believe I can depend on you to do what you said you would do. I just don't think you can really pull it off. Failure to trust God, listen now, failure to trust God like absolutely nothing else maligns and impugns the holy character of God. And that's why God was so provoked in that example we saw in the whole text where he said, they've spurned me. They're literally holding me in contempt after all I've done for them. It's also important to see how failure to trust God grieves God's heart. 
Like any father, there is nothing that God values more than the trust of his child. I have ten children. And I can honestly say the one thing that would devastate me more than anything else as a father would be for one of my children to come to me and say, Dad, I just don't think I can trust you anymore. We deeply grieve the heart of God when we fail to trust Him, and especially since He is more than worthy of our trust. Going back to the example of the Israelites who failed to trust God in the wilderness, listen to Psalm 78, verses 40 through 43. Not in your sermon notes. Listen to these verses. Psalm 78, verses 40 through 43. How often they rebelled against God in the wilderness and grieved Him in the desert. Again and again they tested God and pained They hurt him. They pained the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power. The day when he redeemed them from the adversary, when he performed his signs in Egypt. When you think of all God did to redeem his people from Egypt, what could God have done more to have gained their trust? But remember, the writer of Hebrews is using their example to challenge our unbelief today. Bottom line, what more could God have done to secure our trust today than what He did when He sent His only begotten Son into this world to die as our Savior on Calvary's cross and rise again as Lord of Lords to redeem us from sin? There is absolutely no greater way to dishonor God than when I fail to entrust my life to God, when I fail to entrust my loved ones to God, when I fail to entrust my circumstances into the nail-scarred hands of Jesus, knowing the one who loves me most knows what is best for me. This is why trusting and obeying God is such a big deal with God. Not to mention that when I fail to trust God, I miss out on all the blessings God intended to give me. Just like the Israelites missed out on the promised land. Now go back to your sermon notes and look again at verse 12. Take care, brethren. That there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the loving God. Now look at the next statement in your sermon notes. To believe God is to trust God. And to trust God is to obey God. How does a believer arrive at an unbelieving heart that refuses to trust and obey God? Hebrews 2. Verses 1 through 3, which is the first of the five warnings in the book of Hebrews, reveals the process begins when a believer neglects spiritual growth by carelessly drifting away from God's Word, prayer, worship, and fellowship with God's people. Therefore, the key to not developing an evil, unbelieving heart is never to stop growing in my love for and relationship with Christ. 
Hebrews 2.1, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, referring to the Scripture, lest we drift away from it. Now look in your notes at the steps of drifting. This is a great tool to use to evaluate your life and where you are and whether or not this has already happened to you. Because notice Throughout this passage, it's talking about the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, we arrive at this place of an evil, unbelieving heart, and often we don't even know we're there. So we see here the steps of drifting as seen in Christ's messages to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. You know, there in chapter 2 and 3, Christ sends a message uh, to uh, a number of the uh, churches in the uh, early New Testament church. And, And right in those messages... We see what will inevitably happen if we do not make and maintain spiritual growth as the number one priority in our lives. That's the key. Every believer determining that spiritual growth will be the number one priority in my life above all other things. Because everything else is going to rise or fall on that. And here's the first step. And you see it in the church at Ephesus. And it's neglecting worship. Neglecting worship. He said in verse 4 of chapter 2 of Revelation, but I have this against you, that you've left your first love. That's where it all begins. Now, if you're familiar with his message to this church, he commends them for many things. They believed the Word of God. They were involved in a lot of worship. I mean, a a lot of works, a lot of labor for Christ. Uh, They were even standing up against persecution. But he began something He saw something that was very subtle that began this process of deterioration. He said, you've left your first love. In which my relationship with you is no longer the priority in your life. Your Christianity has become more just a, a routine that you're following. Just a routine to endure. And no longer do I really have your heart. No longer are you tender toward me. No longer do I have your devotion, your love. And folks, when I say worship, I'm not talking about the external trappings of worship. I'm talking about a heart that loves God. I'm talking about a heart that says, yes, there is nothing more important than my relationship with Jesus. Yes, I value that relationship above and beyond all other things. And because I do, I'm going to guard that relationship. I'm going to protect that relationship. I'm going to remain invested in that relationship. Well, that's where the process begins. Where there's no longer that passion of love for Jesus in your heart. You're just going through a routine. It's just rules and regulations. And that'll take you to the next step. And it's inevitable. And you see that in Smyrna. It's a fear of suffering. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Now listen, it's so easy to see how this flows. See, worship is all about what? Focusing on the worth and the value of Jesus Christ. When I neglect worship, this is what's going to happen in my life. It's going to happen in your life. The value of Jesus Christ will begin to diminish. And other things will grab your heart as being more important of having greater value in your life than Christ. 
And reality is, you are only willing to suffer for that which you value. So as I know this diminishing value on Christ, as other things gain my attention, gain my affections and my allegiance, I develop a fear of suffering for Jesus. I'm afraid to stand alone and to be true to Jesus. And that leads you to the third step. Again, it's inevitable, inescapable. Pergamum is compromise. Compromise of truth. See, when I fear suffering, that is going to lead me to compromise to escape the suffering. And that's what the Hebrew Christians were in danger of. They were facing serious persecutions. Persecution under the emperor Nero, as I mentioned earlier. Following Christianity in their day was synonymous with suffering. It could bring torture, imprisonment, and even martyrdom. And they were afraid. And their fear was tempting them to compromise the truth of God, to water it down so that they could live in their society and not make waves, not get the attention of the Roman Empire to where they possibly would suffer, where they, instead of advancing the gospel, they began to retreat. And then what happens when you, after compromise, the fourth step you see in Thyatira, moral failure, leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality. In other words, where once you compromise, now you've just fallen into, just, it's about you. It's about your gratification. And it may not be sexual moral failure. But I'm just talking about you, you it, it, just that selfishness grabs you. And again, it's not about the glory of God. It's about your gratification, about not God's holiness, but your happiness. And that runs the show. That controls the way you look at things, the way it controls the decisions you make in life. And then step five, Sardis. It's death to spiritual growth. Begins by neglecting worship, which leads to a fear of suffering. That fear of suffering will bring compromise. Compromise will bring moral failure, and moral failure brings death to spiritual growth. He says to this church, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. And sadly, there's a final step, and you see that in the church of Laodicea. The church that he called lukewarm. And in verses 15 and 16 we read, You are neither cold nor hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. These are folks that are going to church. They're sitting under the teaching of God's Word. And Jesus says, I look at you, and you make me sick. You nauseate me. I'd rather have you cold than the state that you're in. And folks, that can happen to your pastor. 
And that can happen to any one of us right here. We are all so very vulnerable to the deceitfulness of sin and to begin to slowly, carelessly drift. And we don't even realize it often till we're so far away. We wake up, how in the world did we get there? And folks, this can happen quickly. Let me mention one other thing very quickly. In the last chapter of the book of Colossians, the church of Laodicea is mentioned. And it's obvious at that time when he wrote that book, this was a church that was passionate for Christ, that was red hot for Christ. And Colossians was written in in the early 60 A.D.s. Revelation was written probably in the uh, 90 to 95, 96 A.D. So in a span of 35 years, this church went from being red hot for Jesus to a church that sickened him, that nauseated him. And the point is this. said all that to be able to say this. We desperately need one another. We desperately need one another. We desperately need to encourage one another towards spiritual growth. That's why God provided the church family. We cannot do it as lone rangers. We cannot do it alone. Sin is too deceitful. The devil is too tricky. We need to have one another's backs. And when you see someone in the church family begin to drift, when you see them begin to drift from worship, when you see them and their heart begins to lose that hotness for Christ, When you see them drift from the study of God's Word, drift from prayer, drift from fellowship with God's people, we need to love them enough to go along their side and get them back anchored to Jesus. Look at the second truth. We need to encourage one another not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need to encourage one another also not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Look at verses 13 and 15. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. While it is said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Now look at the next statement in your notes. We become hardened. I'll keep this very simple for you, but it hits, it, I mean, it's hitting the nail right on the head. We become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin when we hear God's word, but do not obey it immediately. That's what hardness of heart is. I hear God's word, but I do not obey it immediately. Three times in this passage, Hebrews 3, the word today is emphasized. Today, right now, you hear God's voice. You get into the Scriptures. You see the truth. Obey it. Look at uh, James chapter 2, verses 22 through 24 says it all. But prove yourselves, what? Doers of the Word and not merely hearers, don't miss this, who what? Delude themselves. Deceive themselves. Great cross-reference. There's the deceitfulness of sin. A person who hears, but they don't do. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. 
In other words, you, you look in the mirror, you see the changes that need to be made. But once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he is. Now, let's be even more specific. Look at that question in your notes, the next question. What is the evidence? What is the telltale sign that our hearts have been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Well, the answer is, as you see there, we will demonstrate the same attitudes that the Hebrews did in the wilderness. Here it is. Get them down. I'll mention five of them. And if, and if these things are capturing your life, then you're already hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And you need to repent and return. First one, negativism. Negativism. You're just critical about everything. You're just pessimistic. Depressed. Discouraged. Because of your unbelief in God. Your failure to trust Him. And then not only negativism, but anxiety. Fear. Again, rooted in that mistrust of God. You're so afraid of what might or might not happen with you or your loved one. You've lost. You're blind to the fact that God is a present reality today, right now. And He's extending His grace to you with that reckless love that we talked about that always pursues you if we would only stop and turn to Him to be embraced by Him and His grace. And then grumbling. Just complaining, just murmuring. You, you can't be happy with anything. You know, you're not happy with your marriage partner. You're not happy with the church leadership. You're not happy with your employer, your employees. You're not happy with this or your circumstances, whatever it might be. And again, don't miss what we saw in that Old Testament example. From the people's perspective... They weren't grumbling toward God. Oh, they were complaining about Moses, complaining about Aaron, complaining about this, complaining about that. And God is up there saying, what is it the root of all this is? They're grumbling against me. They have no confidence in me. They're saying by their actions, I'm not reliable. They can't depend upon me. They're spurning me. They're holding me in contempt. They're questioning my very integrity. And then quarreling. Quarreling. Why quarreling? James tells us. Remember James raised it. Where all these quarrels come from in your life? And he says, it's because of the selfishness that's grabbed hold of your heart. And deep down you want your way. And you'll fight to get your way. And you've lost sight of the fact that life is about becoming more like Jesus. It's about releasing rights. Becoming, knowing His meekness, His gentleness. Knowing His holiness. Knowing His unconditional love towards others. And that's all lost now. It's only about you. What you want. And you'll fight to get it. And then of course, the fifth one. Is where it all leads is disobedience. 
a disobedience that was rooted in an unbelief, seen in the negativism, the anxiety, the grumbling, the quarreling. Now, the next statement in your notes is so important if we're truly going to encourage one another not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And here it is, bottom line. We are never to let these attitudes go unchallenged in the family of God. Period. If we see any of that in the family of God, we see it in any, in any member of this church, again, it's not that we do that to go on attack against that individual or, or that particular church, whatever it might be. No, in love, we go to them. Because they've been deceived by sin. They don't even realize how far they've drifted, where they are. And they may or may not receive our loving challenge. But love demands that we go. Love demands that we try. Love demands that we pursue. Because in the end, they're not just maligning God. They're not just grieving God, they're missing out on so much. They're missing out on all the blessings God would have for them, the true joy, the true peace, that unconditional love, because they're spurning Him. They're rejecting Him. And then the third truth, and I won't have time to say much about it, we are to encourage one another to persevere in our faith in Christ. Hebrews 3.14, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm unto the end. In other words, how do we demonstrate the authenticity of our Christianity? By continuing to trust Him. By continuing to follow Him. There's no other way. The only way for me to demonstrate the reality of my relationship with Jesus Christ is not to go back and tell you about my exodus from sin, but just to demonstrate to you, today, I'm trusting God. Today, there's nothing more important than my relationship with God, than spiritual growth. And I'm demonstrating the fruits of that. Again, not that I'm perfect, not that you're perfect, any of us are perfect, but we're pointed in the right direction, and yes, it may sometimes be two steps forward and one step back, but we're pointing in the right direction, and we're continuing to move forward towards Jesus, putting our trust in Him, and becoming more and more like him. Would you bow with me in prayer? I think it would be very appropriate as we conclude this service. Um, praise team can stand. We're not going to. We're not going to do a song today. I think it would be good for us just to. Provide a time of evaluation. In other words, this is what I'm asking you to do. This is what I'm challenging. Would you right now, right where you're seated, number one, remove all distractions and focus on God alone. Just, just get alone with God right where you are. And then will you ask God, God, have I drifted from you? God, have I been caught by the deceitfulness of sin? God, 
Is spiritual growth really the number one priority in my life? God Is there negativism in my life? Anxiety? Grumbling? Quarreling? Disobedience? And then where God convicts you. You need to realize behind all of that is an evil heart of unbelief. And this morning, that's what you need to confess. God, I confess my mistrust of you. I confess that I've been spurning you. I confess that although I haven't realized it, I've been saying to you, I don't believe you're reliable. I don't believe I can really depend upon you. And then this morning, would you put your trust in Him? This morning, would you say, Lord, right now, listen to me now very carefully. Lord, right now, I surrender my life into the nail-scarred hands of Jesus to be molded and fashioned by Him. And because I know He's the one that loves me most, because He's the one that knows what is best for me, right now, I give you the freedom, the absolute freedom to arrange the all things in my life, the circumstances, relationships, everything in the way that you deem best. And then I trust as I go forward, you'll give me the grace when I can't trace your hand to trust your heart. I'll just give you some time to be alone with God. Father, we come before you this morning as a corporate body of believers, as one, as a family of believers. And Father, we acknowledge our mistrust of you. We acknowledge our unbelief. An unbelief that has resulted because we've drifted from the priority of spiritual growth. An unbelief that has been evidenced in negativism, anxiety that has gripped our hearts a grumbling, complaining spirit, a quarreling attitude, and disobedience. Father, we pray in your infinite mercy and by the blood of Jesus, you would pardon our iniquity. And Lord, we choose this day, today, to put our trust in you. We surrender our lives to you confident. The one who loves us most knows what is best.
And yes, today, in this moment, we do give you the freedom to arrange the all things in our lives in the way that you deem best. So, Father, we desperately need you. We acknowledge the deceitfulness of sin. We acknowledge the reality of our adversary and his ability to deceive. We desperately need you to protect us. We desperately need one another. So, Lord, teach us in this the role that we play in having one another's backs encouraging one another, watching out for one another, being aggressive at going to a brother or sister that we see is drifting, where we see the evidences of unbelief, and to love them by saying we care. Because bottom line, they're just missing out on God's best. And so, Lord, we we trust you in this, and we trust that you truly will be the power at work in us, uh, both to will and do uh, of your good pleasure, for it's in Christ's name we do pray, amen, amen. I just felt led to lead, lead, uh, end the service that way. You know, we normally do, if you are our guests, we normally do have a formal invitation uh, where people can come forward to acknowledge any decision or to unite with the church or profession of faith. Uh, but I think that was just the appropriate way to end today. And, uh, and I would really encourage you to take those sermon notes and use them this next week just in your own personal devotions to continue to evaluate your life, uh, to continue to uh, rebuild your trust and restore your relationship with Christ and the priority of spiritual growth. Again, how many times have you heard me say, listening to a message has never changed the what? The first person. It's what you do with the message once you leave here. And just as you, and even if you just had some emotional, cathartic experience right now, it won't mean anything unless you follow through. Because trust is a choice. And those choices have consequences. And so I'm challenging you lovingly to maintain spiritual growth. It's number one priority in your life. Your number one priority is not to be a great father, great dad, great wife, great mom, great worker. Yeah, you're to be all of that. But you can't be any of that until Jesus is first place in your life. You only can be all of that as your priority is spiritual growth. It's only in that relationship do you find the grace to love your wife as Christ loved the church. You wives respect your husband as unto the Lord. Or to unconditionally love those snotty-nosed kids. Or you children, teenagers, to honor your parents. All of that can only be done through the grace of God. So God bless you. Uh, thank you for uh, being here. Remember, small groups uh, tonight. Youth ministry will meet. And then uh, small groups. Uh, remember to uh, bring your uh, baby bottles back uh, next Sunday on uh, Father's Day. And so God bless you, you're dismissed, and thank you again one more time, all you VBS workers, praise you for what you did. <laughs>